Co-working tenants in office spaces are big and they're still growing. So today we ask the question, are co-working spaces a good fit for retail buildings and shopping centers? Would you work at the mall? You're listening to Where We Buy, the show about the things we buy and the places we buy them. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. This is the show where we have conversations with fascinating people and visit shopping spots across the nation. Today, we're talking to the founders of a creative co-working space in Boston, an office market expert, and a researcher who's gone deep into the phenomenon of co-working spaces in shopping places. Co-working is big, like really big. I talked to Scott Homa to get a sense of the scope of it all. Scott works with me at JLL. My name is Scott Homa, and I'm the director of U.S. Office Research. Just last year in 2017, WeWork expanded faster than any other office tenant across the country. And we saw the sector overall uh, since 2010 grow at an average annual rate of 23%. And just to provide some context, the office market overall expands typically at about 1%. So you're seeing 23x growth within this sector. You're seeing an absolutely staggering amount of investor capital uh, coming from groups like Blackstone and SoftBank and the Carlyle Group. So co-working is a big trend. Plus, We've got some empty retail space out there. These two facts led us to one big question. And Keisha Virtue, who's on our retail research team, has been digging into that question. I'm Keisha Virtue. I'm a senior research analyst for JLL. Well, I think the big question is, can co-working really work at the mall? I mean, it's already a big deal in the office sector, but translating it to retail, I think, was a big question mark. Um, is it really fulfilling a um, function uh, by filling vacant space and adding value to the centers? In order to answer that question, Keisha scoured the country and created a database of co-working spaces within retail properties. So it gave me a really good sense about 75 different spaces across a lot of different kinds of retail and by being able to examine them on different levels, uh, the center type, you know, whether it's a mall or a strip center or some sort of mixed use project, uh, looking at the location, looking at things like um, the square footage, um, walking distance to um, transit, like um, rail, rail stations, the walkability of the area, um, the amenities offered. We got a really, really good feel for what these co-working spaces were about. I think my initial thought was that co-working in retail would mirror what we're seeing in office, just um, from general knowledge. It being just a co-working space operating just as it would within an office concept, but that just isn't the case. Um, within co-work, within retail, co-working has, I think, a very different flavor. Um, there's a lot more retail, even within in the spaces themselves, which I found really interesting, and a lot more interaction with the community that it is a part of. One of the many co-working businesses in retail places that we looked at was SpaceUs. That's S-P-A-C-E-U-S. SpaceUs was born from the opportunity that its two co-founders saw in the retail around them. 
So my name is Stephanie, and I am currently a graduate student at MIT School of Architecture and Planning, and I am currently starting a startup with my co-founder, Ellen Shakespeare, also in the MIT School of Architecture and Planning. As residents of Cambridge, we found ourselves frustrated by the number of vacancies you were surrounded by. We live in Central Square, which is a pretty vibrant place. It's right in between Kendall and Harvard Squares, which are basically where the two institutions are anchored. And we thought, I mean, it essentially made no sense that these spaces were empty. Hi, this is Ellen Shakespeare, and I'm the co-founder of Spaces. On our walks to school every morning, we would walk by vacant storefronts, and these would be these incredibly awesome buildings and huge storefronts that would just sit persistently empty for months, if not years, over the course of the time that we would walk through Central Square on the way to school. Essentially, that as architecture students, we're taught to design for people, and yet there are very few opportunities to actually engage with the people who use buildings. We wanted to learn how to design for people in a way that actually made people happy, made people's experiences of buildings better, and yet there weren't really many opportunities to talk to people outside of our immediate peers and professors. And so we sort of matched these two problems together, thinking, what if it was this location, these locations that we would walk by every day that, you know, had huge windows that faced out onto the sidewalks and, you know, were in highly trafficked, visible areas? Like, what if those could turn into places where people created and engaged um, with the community on the ground floor, right in the heart of the city? What if we were to design in these retail storefront areas, and we invited people to come inside and actually engage in the process of building design. Um, this thought got us so excited that we began immediately sort of looking for these storefronts and whether or not we could actually afford to rent them. And we found that first they were exorbitant, so we couldn't afford them. But at the same time, as we were telling this story to our friends who are creatives, um, architects, designers, artists, they all expressed an interest in engaging with people in a really uh, public manner. As we were describing what we wanted to do, one of our mentors basically said, it sounds like what you want to make is a co-working space, but a co-working space for creatives. And we were like, yeah, that's it. And since then, we've sort of delved uh, straight into looking at all the types of co-working models that exist, seeing what made the most sense for us in our space, um, particularly as we're a pop-up. You know, sometimes we describe it as a pop-up we work for artists. Um, we use that analogy because we, like we work, um, charge uh, membership fees, monthly membership fees. So depending on the amount of time that an artist needs to use the space, um, membership prices and levels vary. Um, along with uh, membership to use the space, we also incorporate a gallery model wherein artists who perhaps already have space, um, their own space, whether that's in another studio in the area or at their home, um, still want to be involved in the programming we've seen or still want the opportunity to sell work out of our space. Space Us is co-working, it's an artist maker space, and it's an art gallery. So what did retail landlords think of that concept? Yeah, when we approached landlords, I would say the response was varied. Um, some people got it, others didn't. Um, we focused on the ones who saw our value. So the responses we would get from them are, 
okay, but, you know, how does this actually work? Um, you know, is it going to be more of a hassle for me to go through this process with you instead of just leave it empty? And we would say, no, we're ready to go. We have, um, you know, hopefully what is a pretty hassle-free license agreement for them. We explain that we have designed furniture um, such that we can get in and out super quickly. Um, nothing requires any permitting. Nothing requires us to, you know, um, mess up any walls. Everything is on wheels. Everything's modular. When one walks into our stores, they are immediately greeted by what we're kind of describing as a quasi-gallery event and store space. So there is where they can see the works made directly by the member artists in our space. Um, they're free to browse through, I mean, a whole range of items. We have paintings, photographs, books, um, sculptures. And the idea is that, you know, having this kind of small retail play at the front of the store draws people in, but then with this kind of uh, co-working space behind it, it's more than just a place to buy work. It's a place where one can meet the artist who created the work and you can have a conversation about it. You can ask them questions about their process, about what inspired them. Um, the artists themselves in turn can get feedback from the public. While we're there, your space is active. It's drawing people from the community. It's drawing influencers from the larger Boston art scene. I mean, in essence, we're, we're arguing that we're showcasing their property. So instead of it sitting empty, you know, becoming the site often of graffiti, vandalism, just like an eyesore in the, in the greater neighborhood, we're going to be there activating it in this transition period for them. So our first location was in Faneuil Hall Marketplace. It was a two-story former Yankee Candle in South Market. It was uh, a space that we never thought we could get, and we uh, we got the space after writing a bold email to a broker who found our mission to be cool and uh, knew the exact place for it. And so when we heard that we could potentially be in Faneuil Hall Marketplace, we were really excited. Uh, we were shocked that there were a lot of vacancies, but it seems that they're undergoing a major transformation. And as a result, there's some um, changing of tenants that is leading to sporadic vacancies. And so we tested out this model in Daniel Hall Marketplace. And we had the space for about a month. And during that month, we were able to make the space a platform for a lot of people's work, a lot of artists' work. We had a number of people sign up to become members, which is how we knew we had something real going on. We were there for just about over a month, hosted a huge range of events. Faneuil Hall Marketplace is, you know, dense with people every day of the week. And, you know, it was a surprising place, I think, for some to encounter art and to encounter artists. You know, it's a, you know, place of commerce. You know, we would have people you know, duck their heads in and say, oh, is there something to buy here? <laughs> I remember very vividly, one woman came in. She was waiting for the Pepper Palace below us to open, and she popped in to see what we were doing. And we went to show her the exhibition that we had going on, and she was really excited by this one piece called The Memory Box. And, I mean, she basically, I think for about 30 minutes, debated whether or not she wanted to buy it. Um after realizing she could not live without it, she 
purchased the artwork and then we connected her to the artist who made it. We have a lot of artists. They all work in different media. There are painters, there are sound installation artists, there are multimedia installation artists, sculptors who work on small-scale objects, sculptors interested in working on 2D. There are video producers. There's a small architecture firm that's working on documenting all the churches in Cambridgeport. There are some people who are in our space who have full-time jobs as strategy analysts or something along those lines, and they use the space as really a way to explore their creative side. The target demographic for Spaces is artists and knowledge workers who want to work around creative people. But that's not the traditional co-working membership. As Scott Homa explained to me, most co-workers are a lot more buttoned up. And the concept of flexible space as a broadly defined term uh, stretches back to the 1950s or 60s even, uh, when you saw the rise of the executive suites and uh, various options that catered to freelancers and small businesses and mobile employees. Um, you saw Regis, uh, which is now IWG, a, a parent company that encompasses a few brands. But you know that that's a brand that that was established in the 1980s. It's by far the largest uh, flexible space and co-working organization out there, um, and and a real mainstay. But you also have thousands and thousands of other providers globally. You know, historically, I would say that the target consumer for a co-working organization would be your freelancer or small business. Um, you know, typically a sort of cash-strapped um, sort of user that's looking for um, really the most economical and convenient option for them to have a more professional work setting than just a Starbucks or working from their home office. Um, there are a whole lot of downstream benefits in, in terms of kind of networking and being able to arrange conference space and, you know, and host clients and so forth. What tenants want today is they want adjacency, proximity to their workforce and their clients. Um, they want walkable environments, and they certainly want retail. You know, they want daytime amenities where instead of you know, the CEO watching his or her employees get into a car and drive 15 or 20 minutes to lunch and, you know, be out of the office for an hour. They want them to, you know, kind of hop upstairs and have a salad or a sandwich and then be back at their desks working in 20 minutes. Or they want them to pop downstairs to your, um, you know, kind of quick service restaurant and, um, you know, and, and be back. It's just, it, it's an efficiency means. Um, and I think that, that part of that change that we've seen of uh, just that single use property type in suburban locations to these more urban environments in which you have those property types literally stacked on top of one another, you know, ground floor retail, or maybe a couple of floors um, with office uses on top of it. Um, you know, that, that mixed use type development um, is now giving way to a convergence of these uses within the same four walls. Given the kinds of amenities that coworkers want, it seems like putting these places within shopping centers is a total no-brainer. So I asked Keisha Virtue, what kinds of retail places are these co-working groups going into? I found that uh, most of the co-working spaces were located in malls or street front retail and mixed-use projects. So it really was a balance. Those were really the top three. 
We've got a, for example, a, what is it, over 700 uh, empty Toys R Uses. Now, are those prime candidates for, uh, for co-working space? You know what? I think some of them are. I found that there was a definite market for co-working spaces within certain power centers. And those that are in power centers, they're looking at mid-level power centers with, you know, pretty good um, consumer income levels. But um, the spaces that they're requiring are pretty pretty large, I see about 31,000 square feet on average, which is right around what these vacant toys or spaces are. So I think there will be an opportunity to fill some, some of the backfill some of these spaces that are in power centers. Back in Boston, Stephanie and Ellen, the Spaces co-founders, found themselves popping up for a month in Boston's Faneuil Hall Marketplace. If you've never visited, this is the top tourist shopping and dining destination in downtown Boston. It was a huge learning process at Faneuil Hall because um, it was the first time we did it. And so we were, you know, asking for a landlord to take a gamble on us and, um, you know, be the first one to kind of see value in our being there. I'd say um, what we're able to do after Faneuil Hall now is say, like, listen, we've proven this concept before at Faneuil Hall. We know that we can draw crowds. Um, we know that we're able to you know, sell product within the space. We know that we have a deep membership now. Um, so basically the, the learning from Faneuil Hall was getting all of those in place um, in order to be you know, stronger when we approach the second landlord. Right now, we're in the middle of building up a pipeline of spaces. We are talking to a few places in Cambridge, as well as a place in Boston, in the downtown Boston area. Looking forward, we know that we would like to sign that 5- to 10-year to 15-year lease on a place to provide a stable place for artists to make within the city. But I think one thing that the pop-up brings is excitement about different locations, and it brings a vibrancy, which is something that our artists like and also the communities that we've activated have enjoyed. It would be our dream to have kind of a a flagship permanent location within a city while also maintaining this, you know, more constellation of pop-ups around it. This would absorb kind of some of the unpredictability associated with pop-ups and just the realities of vacancy and commercial storefronts. while also maintaining the ability for artists to experience different, you know, nooks and crannies of their city. So tell me more about um, your your second space. How is it pronounced Rosendale? It's called Roslindale, but apparently the true Boston way to say it is Roslindale with a V in the front. <laughs> Vro- <laughs> Vro- Roslindale? <laughs> okay. Yeah, Roslindale. Or you take out the R altogether if you're feeling very Bostonian. Voslindale, thing like that. <laughs> Va- Voslindale. <laughs> yeah. So that's a it's a former like like substation. Yeah, exactly. It's so Roslindale was the first streetcar suburb, and this substation was where the trolleys used to change from AC to DC power, whatever that means. It's one of the four remaining substations in the area, and it is so beautiful. I mean. I don't really know that much about the function. All I know is that it's an amazing place to work. So it's a huge brick building uh, from photos I've seen. It seems like, is it just one big open space inside? It is one big open space. And 
the entire building is historically landmarked. Strangely, we've had a lot of traction with historically landmarked buildings. And so we bring our own walls that sort of, they roll on um, wheels, they're on casters, and they they create partitions within the space. But without those, it's just one huge empty space. It's actually pretty square. During our opening this past week, we were the host of a sound installation that basically was a composition of all the birds and frogs that went extinct in the past few years. And the way that the acoustics really um, work in the substation, it was incredible to be in the space and hear it. The piece was also a multi-channel installation, meaning there were four speakers. Essentially, you would be able to hear different animals as you were walking through the space, and you would experience it in a completely different way as you walked around. And that also led to a like nature day camp coming to our space so that kids could learn about different animals and, I guess, the entire process of extinction. One of my favorites was at our opening last Saturday, we had a local arts, um, a local arts educator come and lead a natural painting workshop for kids. This was awesome because it coincided with a farmer's market across the street. So, you know, right across from where locals were selling blueberries and beets and carrots, there was an art workshop being held by one of our members teaching, you know, local kids how to make paintings with those exact same ingredients. I mean, the results were incredible, and there were a lot of kids who were incredibly excited about using blueberries to make paintings. Spaces is something of an outlier when it comes to co-working in retail places. Most co-working spots are just a bit more straight-laced. In our study, we found that 78% of them were what we call telework hubs. These are professional working spaces geared up for entrepreneurs, remote workers, and small firms. That seems to be where most of the demand is coming from. When I talked with Scott Homa, I was struck by the explosive growth in co-working, but that growth got me a little bit worried too. Could it be a bubble? Co-working seems to be booming right now, but will it continue to grow through the different economic cycles? When we hit our next downturn, I mean, what happens to the, to the co-working space? So much of the the feasibility of running a profitable co-working business is driven off of the cost structure. And the biggest piece of the cost structure is the base rent. And for office buildings, class A office buildings in an urban area in which an operator might be coming in at top of market rents, if you are to see some sort of a reset, um, that the economics just typically won't pencil out if you start to see uh, rents materially fall and you see economic alternatives that are more attractive for kind of small and mid-sized businesses. You know, I would venture to guess that for a lot of the underutilized retail out there, however, you know, the cost basis of getting in uh, on a lease, or maybe it's just some portion of space that's carved out for this type of use. I think that there's a lot more durability and a lot more opportunity within the retail segment where you can really try to 
compress that segment of costs. Rent is typically between 40 and 45% of, um, of costs for a co-working operator. Um, so it's really important to find that delta. It's really important to drive that, uh, that rent arbitrage in which you have a long-term inexpensive lease, but you're able to parcel things out for a higher rent. So the business concept has been validated and you know we don't see this trend reversing anytime soon even if there is an economic downturn we really do believe that this is it's the future of work in many ways it's the future of retail and i think it's one of the greatest opportunities out there for retailers to get that foot traffic back into their environments not every retail space is right for co-working in our research, we identified four distinct types of co-working found in retail places. Each of these has its own target user and price range. There's a good variety in the kinds of shared workspaces that people are looking for, and there's a chance that one of these types might make sense for a vacant retail building near you. For much more on this topic, you can get our full report at jllretail.com. Click on Retail Intelligence. Coming up, we've got episodes on Portland, Oregon, how to define the retail experience, and oh so much more. Don't miss any of it. Subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app on Spotify, or any other podcast app. You can also tell your Alexa to enable the Where We Buy skill. Or you can even go to the web at wherewebuy.show. We want to make our podcast as interactive as possible. You've probably been out in the world and saw some retail thing, and you were like, wow, that is really interesting. Well, we want to know about it. Leave a message on the Where We Buy hotline, and we'll use it on an upcoming show. Give us a call at 602-633-4061. Be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. I'm always looking for opportunities to meet up with listeners in person. My next scheduled event is the ICSC Research Connections Conference in downtown Los Angeles. I'll be moderating a panel about virtual reality and digital entertainment. The dates on that are October 28th through the 30th. If you want more information, just Google Research Connections Conference ICSC. I want to give a special thanks this week to everyone who worked on our retail co-working report. In addition to Scott and Keisha, who you heard from today, Rebecca Beam handled our super slick graphic design, and Katie Sershon is our marketing ninja. Our theme music is Run in the Night by the Good Lords under Creative Commons license. Thank you.